From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Senate Appropriations Committee has a funding bill that would give an increase to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. The 2022 Homeland Security Funding Bill would give CISA $2.6 billion. That's $600 million more than the agency's current annual budget. The extra funding would go toward security upgrades, threat detection programs, and the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. Reprimands will start rolling out for military service members who refuse to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Those punishments can range anywhere from losing benefits to removal from the armed forces. Active duty members of the Navy must get vaccinated by November 14th. The current vaccination rate in the Navy for at least one dose of the vaccine is 98%. The director for foreign military sales at the Pentagon is stepping down after 15 months of service. Heidi Grant, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency director, is leaving government service after 32 years. Grant was the first civilian to run the agency since its creation in 1998. Deputy Director Jed Royal will assume the role on an acting basis starting November 7th. The Veterans Health Administration has an event next week. The Innovation Experience Virtual Series will showcase the advances in innovation, collaboration and technology that will improve and save veterans' lives. Allison Emrine is Director of Operations for the Veterans Health Administration Innovators Network. Allison, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you have an event coming up, uh, the 2021 uh, VHA Innovation Experience. What's the purpose of that event? The event is to really showcase um, the, the tremendous innovative and creative work um, that VHA is doing to support veteran uh, health and improve veteran care, uh, both from the frontline employees that we support to create their own innovative solutions to the collaborations um, that we participate in with uh, academic and uh, private sector uh, innovative companies doing amazing things. Uh, it's all about showcasing um, the tremendous work that we're doing um, to support veterans. So can you give me an example of some of the new technologies and innovations that either you're working on or that you'll be showcasing at the event? Yes, absolutely. So it's interesting. And, and as the, uh, the Innovators Network is solely focused primarily on employee innovation. So I'll kind of practice what I preach here with my employee innovators um, and say that, you know, technology is great if it solves the problem, right? So not every problem uh, results in, in a technical solution. So a lot of what you'll see are programs um, and, and, and talks and demos about um, initiatives or things that are uh, really program-wide like national programs that are impacting veterans as well as technology. Um, we have great examples um, of that at IEX um, with uh, in the tech space with VR, virtual reality, uh, extended reality, um, clinical simulation, synthetic data, machine learning. There'll be IEX talks 
about these topics. Um, digital health and the kind of wearable space is a big area tech-wise that we're playing in. But going back to that non-tech base, you'll see a lot of talks um, about these programs. So um, like a national human-centered design initiative to reimagine veterans healthcare. Um, a, the first initiative from the Center for Care and Payment Innovation called VetSmile. They, they feature some unique and important employee-developed innovative programs. Um, there's a, also an interdisciplinary approach to infertility for uh, SCI patients and a race-based stress and empowerment program. So it's, it's tech and um, kind of program national initiatives. You know, Allison, I understand that you're having a Shark Tank competition at the event. It's, tell me about that. Is that going to be like the TV show? It is. A lot of the work was done um, beforehand, and Shark Tank is really focused on the kind of promising practices that are coming out of uh, the front line of uh, our medical centers and, and the hospitals and the employees that are, are doing the work. Um, and they've had these practices um, be successful at their site or maybe one site and another site. And now um, others bid to have support um, brought in to their site to replicate it locally um, for them. So it's very, it's very much so last year, Mark, Mark Cuban gave us a special shout out um, and had a special video for us to encourage the employee folks. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun event um, and it will, be, it will be great in this uh, virtual format. So tell me what the VHA innovation ecosystem is. What's the process for cultivating new ideas and then bringing them all the way into implementation? Yeah, so it, it's it's focused on two primary portfolios, the Innovators Network and the Diffusion of Excellence. Um, and the goal of the Innovators Network is to build an innovative culture, um, develop innovation as a competency and to empower, you know, the the over 200,000 employees that, that work within the, the Veterans Health Administration. And so with that and, and kind of um, revolutionizing the behaviors and habits uh, of the employees and the way that they're allowed to think um, and the way that they're allowed to solve problems and experiment with small scale solutions, that really starts the ball rolling. And then it, it moves on to these, these creative um, and creative uh, kind of starting prototypes and ideas and then once they're fleshed out they go um, hopefully with the the playbook that the diffusion of excellence has created to really flush them out to see how they can be spread nationally um, and then you add in um, the fellowship opportunities that the innovation ecosystem has um, as well as a number of collaborations um, our work with um, digital health um, democratizing data and 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 it's it's a whole transformative ecosystem to to really change um, how people think um, and opportunities that they have to innovate. Can you point to some measurable successes that you've had that have actually impacted the health of veterans? Yes. So that's an interesting question. I had a member of my team ask the other day, um, a new member, what does success look like? Um, and for the Innovators Network, um, we the innovations, these early stage prototypes um, that eventually evolve into uh, more supported nationally uh, 
projects, programs, initiatives, they've impacted over um, 2 million veterans. And, and that's inclusive of um, our vet techs program, um, appointment reminders, open slot management. Um, we have um, the pride program that has impacted the lives of LGBTQ plus veterans. Um, and, and what's interesting about it is that uh, data and numbers obviously very typically thought of as quantitative, but the innovators network in the ecosystem are both interested in both the output, so these measurable, defined, the 2 million veterans impacted, um, and the outcome, which is about the experience and the transformation of the individuals that participate in our programming. And so um, these, these 2 million veterans um, that have been impacted are the result of um, the 800 plus employees in the innovators network who have participated in our programming um, and, and the the interesting thing and the thing that I'm curious to look at in the future is kind of the trail of the personal and professional impact on those employees um, from having participated in our program and the network's exposure um, to a new way to solve problems, um, confidence, self-worth, and the opportunity to experiment and fail. So the, um, you know, two million veterans plus um, uh, tens of thousands of employees that have participated in, in Shark Tank and um, the programming of the Innovators Network um, and, and the trainings that we provide. And um, I believe that the number for some of the diffusion projects is about um, $30 million of, of revenue of, um, avoided or a cost avoidance. Um, and that's just getting started. All right, well, Allison, thanks for being on the program and good luck with the event. Thank you so much. Coming next, a major power shift in the Pacific under the new nuclear submarine deal. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the message China is sending and how the Pentagon can respond. We'll be right back. The Defense Department's nuclear submarine deal in the Pacific could take decades before the first sub could be deployed. But that's the wrong message to send to China. That's according to retired Army Major General John Ferrari. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. General, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. The Chief of Naval Operations has said that it could take decades before a submarine actually hits the water under this deal. Why do you think that was a mistake? Well, so first of all, the administration should be congratulated for the deal. It was a, it's a real strategic deal that, that enhances our presence in the Pacific and reinforces our deterrence in that, that, that area. So the problem, of course, it's like a lot of things we do in this country where we, where we kind of message to the enemy or our adversaries, you know, our, our weaknesses. And so in, in Afghanistan, it was, hey, we're, we're, we're gonna go in and surge, but don't worry, we're gonna be leaving in a short period of time. In this case, hey, we're going to do this nuclear submarine deal, but don't worry, China, it'll be 20 years you, before anything happens. And so uh, we've, we've essentially unmessaged ourselves and, and, and not altered the strategic chess match in the Pacific uh, if we take that long. But fortunately, I think there are ways that if we wanted to, we can accelerate that. So what do you think the message should be to China? So the message should be that we can get boats in the water, submarines in the water as quickly as possible. So there's two ways to do it. And I think one is submarines in the hands of the Australians under their command sends a, sends a big message 
uh, that the that the, the Australians now have this, but that doesn't increase the number of submarines in the water, right? I think then also through either extending the life of uh, current submarines and some other ways, there's ways to to increase the number of subs in the water, which then changes the strategic calculus that China has to worry about. All right, so let's drill down a little bit on all the things that would be required to speed that process along for deploying the subs. One thing that you mentioned in your article was training. Yes, so, you know, there's a lot of expertise to operate nuclear reactors that has to happen. So we should immediately begin enrolling uh, Australian service members into these programs to get them trained on nuclear reactors. Uh, the other thing that we, we should look at is, right, there's some legislation probably that has to be changed immediately uh, that will allow us to lend lease, right? So in World War II, we didn't tell the allies, hey, you know, don't worry, it'll be 10 or 15 years before we get you equipment. Uh, we, we can have mixed crews uh, using existing submarines that we put under the command of the Australians, which would send a very powerful message. And as you said, you had rec recommended that some of our current nuclear-powered submarines not be retired while the new ones are built. But isn't there a substantial cost associated with that? Well, when you look at how much money we're spending into the, in the Pacific and to reinforce, right, that, that's actually a cost-effective way of actually getting more submarines in the water, extending the life. Uh, if you're looking at a, what they're talking about doing, which is a clean design of a new class of submarines that's going to take 20 years, well, that's a lot of cost. Right, as opposed to using common training, common parts, extending the life of the Los Angeles class for the United States or the Trafalgar class for the Brits. And if you want a new submarine to get more in the water, right, you can extend those. You know, using the current production lines that the British have for the astute class can get a, a brand new submarine in the water in 2028. And so, yes, the you know, new submarines cost two, three, four billion dollars, which is a lot of money, uh, but in the big scheme of things. Uh, these are very powerful uh, weapon systems that, that will cause the Chinese to expend even more money uh, to deter them. You say that we are in a period of strategic vulnerability with China. Why is that? Well, because they're expanding their Navy. Uh, we saw just recently the, the hypersonic launch uh, of a nuclear-capable missile that they did. Uh, we've seen them put uh, nuclear missiles into the ground. They're expanding their Navy at a time when we are restricting our spending uh, in defense. And so uh, they're getting bigger and more powerful and more aggressive in the region, right? We see what they've done in Taiwan with their flights. Uh, they are testing the air defense zone of Taiwan and flooding it with aircraft. Uh, and, and they can afford, because they are close to Taiwan and close to the first island chain, to keep that level of activity up indefinitely. Uh, we have it stretches our force to do that over and over and over again. So, so they have the strategic advantage of time right now, which is why it's so important to get more submarines, right? Because the submarines, uh, they don't have a counter to that and, and it really will change their calculus. So, I mean, how likely do you think it will be that your recommendations be heated? I mean, you've made a lot of, uh, you know, interesting points. Yeah, so I think it's up to the administration and the Congress, right? So I think the Congress needs to push uh, and ask the Navy what needs to be changed and how do we go about doing this? If, you know, President Kennedy in the 1960s, you know, 1963, so we're going to put put a person on the moon, you know, this decade, and we did that nine years from, from start to finish, we certainly can figure out uh, how to get these submarines into the hands of the Australians 
uh, even with mixed crews and extending the service life. And I think the Congress would be very supportive of all this. All right. Well, General, thank you for talking to us about this and uh, nice to have you on the program. Thank you very much. You can find a link to the General, General Ferrari's op-ed at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, federal cyber experts are asking for expertise from the private sector. Straight ahead on Government Matters, best practices to carry out the White House's priorities on cybersecurity. We'll be right back. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has a new request for information. They're asking the private sector for feedback to improve network endpoint detection and response. Bob Bigman is former Chief Information Security Officer at the CIA. He's the founder of To Be Secure. Bob, welcome. Nice to see you. Thank you. Good morning. Give us a brief explanation first of what network endpoint detection and response is. What's the big deal? Yeah, well, it is a big deal. And uh, these tools referred to collectively as EDR and now XDR uh, basically is the next generation of uh, endpoint malware detection. And the idea here, and uh, it actually does work, uh, is instead of doing point by point identification of malware based on signatures, uh, the EDR tools are more sophisticated in that they use their collective intelligence as they look through across the entire domain, the entire network of all the endpoints to compare and contrast, you know, what are you seeing? And if they see something, they look to see if it's on other endpoints or other behaviors that look for or, or basically portend possible infections. They look for those behaviors as well. They also go out and look to their corporate cloud, look at other collective information that they're getting from threat intelligence and give you a broader, deeper picture of what's going on in your network. They also give you the ability to trace the actual infection route from the source of the infection across your network. So you have much more visibility. Um, as I said, if you look if you look at the uh, fines that we've had against mostly the Russians and the Chinese in the last two or three years, they tend to come from uh, these uh, EDR tools. So obviously this is an important issue. It's good that CISA is looking into it. What do you think of their approach as to how they're getting this um, the information that they need and the, the support that they need? Well, not too much. Um, first, I applaud the approach uh, and the response to uh, the EO in, in going out and working with industry. Uh, well done. The approach I find is a little confusing. You know, they basically talk about this gap-filled strategy. Um, but, you know, I've read this RFI five times. Even when I worked for the government, I never read it five, five, five times. Uh, and I really can't figure out what it is that they're asking for. I was actually um, going to ask you that, Bob, because I, I read that as well. And I was like, <laughs> what, what's that? <laughs> yeah, um, it's not clear. They refer to it in the opening, but never come back to it and talk about what actually it is. Now, now having said that, uh, okay, uh, with that yeah, I'd suggest a different style, a type of approach in which they basically, uh, and they've done this, is actually articulate for the various agencies what the actual requirements are. If you want to sell uh, an XDR, EDR tool to the government, here's what it must do. Uh, and they have actually written a, a document of these requirements. And what I would do is work with industry to make sure they understand the requirements, they have tools, capabilities to do it. And then what I would also do, the type, you know, from a gap perspective, is what I would do is work with these industry partners and say, listen, we not only want you to develop uh, this capability, these XDR, EDR tools, we want you to come up with a validation tool. 
that you'll provide to the government that we will run or the agencies will run or both and we will be able to determine whether or not uh your setting has been properly set and configured per our requirements that that's the kind of approach i think would, would keep everyone happy so what are your suggestions then for CISA's longer term strategy, right? Not just for this particular um, issue, um, because, you know, obviously technology rapidly changes as it evolves, as it as it should. Yep. Yep. And they actually reference that in the RFI. And that's where I think they could actually work with them in this case to actually evolve the validation pool as as needs change. They can basically come up with new validation and new security requirements. You know, I, I think the best way they could help everyone is in this fun, in this idea of establishing very clear uh, and consistent sets of requirements to meet government requirements. Re government recommendations and government guidelines you know, from NIST, for example. And and the government needs to sign up to say, you know, if, if you're gonna sell a firewall, an XDR, uh, uh, an encryption tool, you know, it must exhibit the following qualities. And oh, by the way, you must also provide a validation tool, you know, a, a set of a collection of tools that we can run across our network to make sure they're set the proper way. So Bob, what do you think in general um, of CISA's uh, relationship with industry and how they deal with industry and how they get information from industry. Well, yeah, I think it's improving, uh, but we have, it's just long. This is a long road. Uh, uh, people I talk to in industry, frankly, are, are a bit confused as to what exactly uh, CISA wants from them, uh, and I don't think this this RFI really helps a whole lot. Um, I, again, I think the long term approach ought to be more. Um, from a perspective of being the actual cybersecurity requirement organization of the U.S. government, and working directly with industry partners to make sure that we're developing requirements that actually can be met to help meet the, the evolving threat, right? And then work with industry as the threats change to actually change product requirements, and 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 actually be the I don't want to say the standards organization but actually be the organization that validates via these testing tools the correctness of, of these products. All right. Well, Bob, thanks so much for uh, coming on the program. Nice to see you. Sure. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.